This evening, we're going to continue in our series uh, through the book of James. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. You'll find that on page 1012 if you're utilizing your pew Bible. That is pages 1012 in your pew Bible. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. The word of our Lord. Oh, and I'm going to start at verse 8 for context's sake. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this means of grace by which you have chosen, ordained for us to grow. And it is this by which you have chosen to cause us to be transformed into the image of our Lord. And so we look forward with eagerness to hear that which you would have us to hear and pray that you would indeed open our eyes and our ears so that we might see and hear those things that would tend to our growth, that would tend to cause us to submit ourselves to the work of your spirit in and through us. Would you superintend our time even now? Come upon us in a way that we would know you more and more as we hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, mention the word Good Samaritan, and more often than not, just about everyone who hears you, whether a Christian or unbeliever, will immediately think of someone who helps others who are in need, sometimes in great need. The virtue of helping as it relates to this way of thinking is the supreme good, so much so that you even have secular organizations that are titled or named Samaritan, Good Samaritan. They have that somewhere in their title. Now, while it's true then that helping others in need is always a good thing, the question as we look at this text is that the heart, is that what the heart of this is saying? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Uh, to answer that question, I would submit that we would have to, to first be familiar with the societal norms of that day, particularly it relates to the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. In a nutshell, the, the Samaritans were what people call disparagingly today a half-breed, half-breeds. You see, they were taken or besieged by the Assyrians in 722 uh, B.C., and so the, the, if you remember Daniel and his, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were of the royal nobility, and they were the ones that were taken away. So those who were the lower class, much of those people were left back in the northern uh, territory of, of Israel, and then they filled that area also with foreign citizens, and so those foreign citizens got with the Jewish people that were left there, and you had what became the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans, by way of uh, being 
attached to these, these citizens who were foreign citizens. One other thing they got introduced was foreign gods. And so now you have Jews who are now hating these individuals, so much so that when you get uh, to the New Testament, Jesus uh, speaks the parable that he spoke in Luke. But remember, when Jesus met the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, remember what happened? He met the Samaritan woman at the well, and everyone, all his disciples looked at him like he was nuts. And that was that context, because the, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans, okay? And so all, if we consider themselves then, if they considered themselves to be that despised, the Jews did, they didn't realize that they were actually, or maybe they did, they were actually not being consistent with things and the way that God had called them to be. They were actually and factually sinning against God. You see, God wanted them to be his mouthpiece, to represent him, to call others to him. God wanted them to fulfill what Jesus referred to as the second most important law, that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And thus Jesus, knowing that his people were failing in that area, that they were grossly engaged in the sin of partiality, he intentionally shared the story of the Good Samaritan to address what was a common sin of that day. Now, it would have been terrible if Jesus had spoken this parable and then he himself had turned around when he met the Samaritan woman and he himself demonstrated partiality. And if I may boldly say so, if that was the case, we would still be today looking for a savior because he would not have been sinless. I believe that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in remembrance of the things that Jesus taught him, understood how serious the issue of partiality was and, and is, and as such, he set out in this chapter to communicate his thoughts in a manner that would cause our eyebrows to rise and our hearts to take heed. I'd like us to see this heightened address, as I've just alluded to, under three headings, and it's contained in verses 10 through 13, under three headings. First, a sin on par with the worst of them. Second, an admonition to live by. And third, a warning to take heed of. First, there's a sin on par with the worst of them. Look at verses 10 and 11. They read, For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, the first thing I would submit to you that we see here is the law's requirement, and that is perfection. You know, today there are many people, tons of people, who if you were to ask them if they were going to heaven, they would say yes without any uncertainty. And then if you ask them, well, why is that? They would say, because I'm a good person. I do more good than I do bad. Shockingly, this assertion can even be found among people who attend churches. Now, it's interesting to note that everyone who, all of us, all of us are prone to the sin of partiality, but the people that hold to what I just said, I mean, it is like they're swimming in that sin. The fact is all we know that Jesus would not have come. Jesus would not have come and died if it was possible for us to hit some mark of perfection. Any one of conformity to the law of God is a cause 
to experience God's just displeasure. And since the scriptures tell us that there's none righteous, no, not one, and all of us are sinning and falling short of the glory of God, we know that we're all in big trouble aside from Christ. And the sin of partiality, no matter how inconsequential we might think it is, is infinitely huge in the sight of God. Now be reminded that the first four commandments are geared towards God and the next six are towards man's relationship with one another. Scripture does seem to communicate that there are some sins that are more heinous than others, right? I just mentioned the fact that all sin will condemn us, but Scripture does seem to indicate that there are some sins that are more heinous than others. And now when you look at the two sins that James used here to make his points, notice that it's two of the worst of the six man-to-man related commandments. That's what I meant when I alluded to the fact that partiality is on par with the worst of the worst. James seems to be making those commandments to make or using those commandments to make that point. You see, partiality actually violates all the other commandments too, though. All ten of them. Listen to this. Commenting on that assertion, Daniel Doriani wrote, Partiality breaks the tenth commandment in that it prefers the rich man because it covets the riches that the rich man can bestow, right? It partiality breaks the ninth commandment in that it bears false witness because it implies that a poor man has less worth. Partiality breaks the eighth commandment because it robs the poor of the dignity they deserve. It robs... It violates the seventh commandment to favor in that it favors the rich in a kind of unfaithfulness to the bond of Christian fellowship, which is a kind of unfaithfulness to the bond of Christian fellowship. It breaks the sixth commandment, which is don't murder. It kills the spirit of the poor by demeaning them, even in the church. It breaks the, five, the fifth commandment, which is to honor your mother and father. I, I want you to see that the Ten Commandments is, is just like a thesis, if you will, but there's so much that falls under the Ten Commandments. And so it breaks or violates the, ten, the Fifth Commandment. Favoritism dishonors the poor, but we must honor all who deserve honor, including one another. It violates the Fourth Commandment. If we show favoritism in church, we defile our worship, hence the Lord's Day. It violates the Third Commandment. Every believer is a representative of God. If we favor the rich over the poor, we misrepresent God and his name, for he does not play favorites. And finally, it violates the first and second commandments. God gave this command, all disobedience is a kind of denial of God's lordship. So the more you look at partiality through this intentional heightened grid, and not through the the lens of our own self-imposed standards, the more we see how egregious this sin is in God's eyes and why James takes up so much of his epistle addressing it. Remember, James is here emphasizing emphasizing being doers of the word and not just hearers. We are self-deceived, he says, when we don't take heed and conduct ourselves accordingly. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see Verse 12, immediately following what we just read, it says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's our second heading, an admonition to live by. You know, as I was reading this chapter, 
And looking back at what we've covered so far, I couldn't help but remember the theological wars I've read about uh, between scholars uh, who assert between like Paul and James that they're in conflict and that they are saying opposite things. James is saying that you must do works in order to earn your salvation. And Paul is saying, no, it's by faith alone. If you believe uh, what people are saying about James, you should know that that is absolutely false, okay? Both individuals, James and Paul, assert that faith produces works, and works do serve as evidence of one's faith. It does seem, however, and I guess that's why some folks say what they say, that James doesn't highlight the fact that we, we work for Christ out of love for him, not out of duty, not out of necessity or, or feeling of duty. As I looked at this text, then I thought to myself, you know, if I feel this way, then there might be others who probably feel the same way, that James is saying work, 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 merit, 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 but that's not what's going on. And so I just want to emphasize that our labor in Christ is driven by our love for him, by our appreciation for what he's done, and in recognition of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's work on our behalf. We see that highlighted in Ephesians 1, among other places. But having said that, we should note that the admonition to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty is akin to saying, live and act as true believer who has been saved by God's grace and who will be judged on the basis of God's imputed righteousness. There is no condemnation for us. That imputed righteousness frees us from the law of bondage and instead judges us under the redeeming liberty, law of, the law of liberty. Under the law of liberty, again, we've been set free to do that which God has purposed for us. We've been enabled to do his works, those works that he has enabled us to do from the foundation of the world, and we are to engage in those works, and we are to meet all folks. Listen, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? And so if we're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations, do you realize that here in the United States that the average poor person is much richer than everyone else in the world? And so if we come across a person then who is poor, who is ragged, who is anything else, we understand that God has chosen to reach those individuals. And if we are showing partiality, we're not acting in a manner that's consistent with God's word. Okay? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. And so if we've been marvelously set free, if we've been marvelously set free, brothers and sisters, how can we then show partiality and not, as people who are experiencing God's grace, how can we not let other folks experience the fruit of that freedom? May it never be. But perchance there are those who are resistant to James' admonition here. He follows it with what amounts to our final heading, a warning to take heed of. Look at verse 13. It reads, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, in his heightened state of communication, James is pulling no punches. This is akin to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Concerning our verse 13, listen to what John MacArthur wrote. 
In this context, the one who has shown no mercy obviously refers to unbelievers. Their lives are characterized by partiality, hardness, selfishness, and a lack of concern for others. In short, lovelessness. They are far from loving others as they love themselves, reflecting nothing of God's love and care for those in need. They will not be blessed or receive mercy, for they have not been merciful. He then references Matthew 5, 7, which we all know is Jesus himself saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So brothers and sisters, in no uncertain terms, we are to believe that if a person's life is characterized by the sin of partiality, there is a serious chance that that person will not be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And how could we make such a statement? I would surmise it's because the same spirit that has done such great work in creation lives in us. The same spirit that brought everything into existence, that parted the Red Sea, that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit that is so all-powerful dwells in us, and if his fruit is not being produced in us, that should say we should be very wary of what's going on in and through us because the Spirit of God has come to sanctify us, to mold us, to take us from one level of glory to another. And so we see by the evidence of good works that God is working in and through us by his spirit. So there is no sense where he, the Holy Spirit, can fail to accomplish those ends. We've seen then that James is preoccupied with warning us against, time and time he says, self-deceive, self-deceive. So I imagine he did so out of the same love that Christ has for us. In this day and age, people don't want to tell folks the truth. They would rather tell them what they want to hear in terms of tickling ears and so on and so forth. But James is not having any of that. James is letting us know if we do not produce the works of the Spirit, if we are walking in partiality as, as it characterizes us in that manner, then there's a serious issue. Now, let me say that I know I'm personally, I am personally aware of the sin of partiality, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking about it. You see, in this day and age when everything is about partiality, we often think, and people are so divided, we often think, oh, it's black, white racism and all this kind of stuff. But if you remember, some of you might remember that I mentioned that, you know, growing up in the United States Virgin Islands on the island of St. Croix, I'm an American citizen, and I hear family members, my own family members, touting when people are coming from the other islands, Antigua, Trinidad, Tobago, and so on and so forth, they are legal immigrants that have got green papers and all this stuff. They're, they're legally on the island, and we're saying, Oh, those aliens, they're not right. Oh, those aliens. It was just outward partiality. And guess what? Every single person that we were talking about like that was black, right? And so this is me now feeling filled with this partiality pride and all this kind of stuff. And I mentioned that every summer I would go to New York because my mom moved to New York when I was four and I was raised by my great aunt. So then I would go to New York, right? Jump on the plane. Stewardess could put you on a plane back then. And people get, you ain't doing that with your child nowadays, right? Anyhow, so they put me in a plane back then. I get up there. Mom, bring me, take me to the house, meet my brothers and sisters, then go out into the community. 
And everyone is talking at me and joking at me and carrying on and calling me Haitian. So they're calling me now what I used to call other people and treating me that way. And once again, they were all black. So you see, that's one of the reasons why when I wrote my thesis, when I'm working on my thesis and talking about, you know, critical race theory and you have the black-white issue and all this kind of stuff, and they're saying, oh, it's this and that. No, uh The sin of partiality is not based on color of skin. It's based on entrails of sin, you see. And so I understand that, and I see it. And I'm telling you that all of us, even now, I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm partial to things big time. I don't necessarily share them, but I'm aware of what I'm partial to and the sin that I walk in like that, and I repent of it and move on. And all of us have to do the same thing. And in this day and age, when there's so many agendas that are pushing us apart, we have to recognize as a people that we still have to, to show mercy, to do justice, to do all of that stuff without partiality. And that is how we're going to be light in an age that wants to separate all of us according to color and so on and so forth. Okay? Now, in 2024, I have, I'm trying to push us to go to the Delta and for a missions trip, right? I had no, I was, it was not even entering my mind that in the town of Jonestown, the people that we were ministering to would be poor blacks. In my mind, we were going to the Delta to minister to poor people, right? Some folks came to me and bought it, and by, the, by some circumstances and stuff, that sort of stuff came up about color. Let me tell you, we cannot show partiality. We go wherever the Lord sends us, and we do so because if we don't do it, who is going to do it? If we don't love our neighbors as ourselves, who is going to do it? If we don't act like opposite of what the Samaritans, the Jews were acting with the Samaritans, who's going to do it? So, Dean, again, where are we in this? How can we do better? We're all prone to think we're better or doing better than we are. But the instant we take our eyes off God, or even more specifically off Christ, how do we avoid partiality is what I'm saying. The minute we take our eyes off God and off Christ, we're going to revert to the old man. Trust that, okay? We become a subject to a perspective that uses something or something other than God as our standard of judgment. When we take our eyes off God, we're going to place our standard of judgment on something else. And when that happens, it's not a question of whether or not judgment will be off our judgment, but it's just a question of how bad it will be off. And so how does this show itself, you ask me? My answer is in a life or instances of disobedience. In a life or instance of self-determination, when we start determining our own ends, we will walk in a way that will not please God. This is where Jeremiah's description of the heart immediately comes to play. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, he says. Who can know it? The good news, brothers and sisters as Christians, is we don't have to rely on our own instinct. I don't have to rely on my own instinct with any of this or a heart as we live out our lives. We have that which the psalmist describes as a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. Solomon, as we consistently remind ourselves, tells us not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust the Lord with all our hearts, to acknowledge him in all our ways, 
Not some of our ways, but in all our ways. And he will, not might, direct our path. As those who are referred to as sheep, it should be beyond comforting to know that our shepherd will not leave us wanting. But he will most assuredly keep us according to the counsel of his own perfect will and mind. I wanted to end with this particular quote by a scholar because I think that it sums up everything, just about everything that I said this evening a lot better than I did. So this is one of those things where it's like, well, Dean, why don't you just read that and just end your sermon, you know? Well, let me read this. It says, partiality is inconsistent with the Christian faith because the Christian faith is consistent with the nature of God and God is wholly impartial. Partiality is inconsistent with the purpose and plan of God of choosing the poor of this world to be spiritually rich. Partiality is inconsistent with loving your neighbor as yourself. Even if it were the only sin a person ever committed, partiality, like all other sins, shatters the entire law of God and makes a person a transgressor condemned to hell forever. If you come before the judgment seat of God and he sees that you have lived a life that is merciful to others, he will show mercy to you because your mercy will testify to your saving faith. It will be true in your case that mercy triumphs over justice. And, you know, I thought I was going to end here, but I have one more thing that I want to say. And that is I remember keenly that when I was installed here in this church, my father, stepmother, uh, brothers, sisters, a whole bunch of folks came here. And, you know, they came here, and you've heard me say this before, they came here thinking that, what, you going to Mississippi? And then the way they would talk, it was like a noose around every tree, right? And then they came in the church, and they met you. And they walked out of here, and they were like, wow, what sweet spirits. Oh, my goodness, they were so nice. They were so kind, da-da-da-da. So what am I saying? I am saying that the Spirit of God is real in this house, that the sin of partiality is going to have a hard time fighting in this house because we love the Lord, we are serving him, and we are going to continue serving him. None of us are perfect, but we are on the path of serving our Lord. Our characteristic is not that of partiality. Our characteristic is that of loving your neighbor. Amen? Let's pray. A glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this particular text. We thank you for this opportunity to examine our own hearts, to see whether or not we are walking in the sin of partiality. We pray that if indeed there's anything in us that's causing us to look down on others, to show partiality to others, to favor the rich over the poor, and, and all the other categories and ways that we could show partiality, we pray that you would cause your spirit to be strong in us, that we would intentionally submit ourselves to the guide and teaching and heart of your spirit so that we might fulfill the purposes to which you've called us, so that we might be salt and balm to those who need us, so that we could be your hands and feet and be according and walk and live according to your nature and not our falling nature. We thank you that you saved us to the utmost, and we thank you that you're now keeping us and that you're now using us. And it is to that end what we pray, begging upon your mercies, that again, that you would use us mightily, individually and as a church, to take forth your gospel, to advance the fame of your name. Here in Ridgeland, 
in the state, in the globe, just throughout the world. All to the praise of your glory, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.